From VT Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, as the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbates Vermont's affordable housing crisis, new research on flexible housing models suggests that the state could benefit from rethinking how to build homes. But advocates wonder whether creativity is enough to help the people who need housing now. Can you see that? Is that working? Last month, our reporter Aaron Patenko got a Zoom tour of the Burlington Co-Housing East Village, a cooperative across the street from the UVM Medical Center. I'm going to walk and show you out my patio door since we're sort of at a, a lull right now. Yeah, can you guys see? A couple see of things you can see besides the beautiful garden that Doris has created, you can also see the uh, some of the solar panels. The concept of co-housing is essentially that you have your own small space, you know, a bedroom, maybe a small kitchen, something like that. And then you have bigger shared spaces that the community pitches in and builds together. There's 320 solar panels here. We produce over $16,000 of electricity every year. And way to the right, uh, you will, well, that's, that's another neighbor's garden over there, beautiful garden. The three people I've talked to were Don Schramm, who was one of the founders of the co-housing community, Doris Bettinger, who is one of its residents, and John Patterson, another resident. And, and right there is, like, you can't really see it, but we have an electric car charging station, and, and the power for that is coming from our solar panels. I have to admit, the first time they described it to me, what came to mind was like a a very small New England village, maybe one that was at the very beginning of people settling in the area where it was so cold that you you didn't want to have to walk very far (laughs) and you didn't want to have to spend a lot of time building your home. So you just try to build everything as close together as possible. And if you can share things or, you know, save yourself the time of building repeat facilities, you can just all share one kitchen or one outdoor space or one place where you put all your chickens together. One neighbor um, started a chicken project. So we've got, I think at the moment we have 14 egg producing hens, known as the ladies. We also have a couple of beehives that this year has produced an amazing amount of honey, like over 120 pounds of honey. There's a lot of things going on here, for sure. Yeah, sounds like it. And why? Why set out to build a facility like this? You know, it is in some ways a little bit of a way to save yourself some of the expenses of having a neighborhood or a community because you're pitching in to uh, share a gardening area or to share your heating costs. All our common spaces, our kitchen, our uh, utilities are so cheap because we share them. We've got a super efficient boiler system. We share trash expenses, we share landscaping expenses and snowing expenses. So all those shared expenses keep it affordable for everybody also. But it's also a different way of thinking in terms of your social life. It's a way to build a deliberate community around your home. Where we lived before, we, we liked the place fine, but there was little contact between people. Everybody was so busy with their lives. And the, the whole idea of being part of a community where people actually 
paid attention to one another and looked out for one another was great. The concept is that you share the work of the chores of those shared spaces with your neighbors. Then you get the benefit of having them there and building like a, a kind of family almost, or just having a community of neighbors that you can hang out with, have events with, have the one of the residents described how she just leaves her door open all the time and people can wander in and out on her floor, having that community around you. It's no small thing when we live in a community that tries to operate by consensus to, tr to try to take account of what something means for somebody else, which is something that often it seems in contemporary America we tend not to do. You know, what can I get for me now, you know? But that's not the way that we try to think. And, and everything from our, the way that our buildings are designed to the way that our gardens produce kind of reinforces that. That's our phone. <laughs> what led you to Burlington co-housing in the first place? It was a bit of a, a winding journey. I started with a new paper that has come out on envisioning a different type of architecture design to help with affordable housing in Vermont. And from there, I started to ask myself, well, why do homes in Vermont look the way that they do? Why do we have this concept of a single family living in a home with its own yard and its own fence? And are there people in Vermont that don't live that way, that have, you know, come up with some other idea or solution to fit their own needs. And that led me to a lot of different places, including co-housing communities, but also uh, tiny homes to side apartment units to home sharing. And what is kind of the grand problem that these alternatives are all trying to address? You know, what is the issue with the conventional housing system as we've known it? The conventional housing system, as we've noted, is kind of expensive. Homes across the nation, and including in Vermont, have gotten bigger and have more space for fewer people. But that also means that they've gotten more expensive to live in. There are a lot of people who simply cannot afford to buy their own home or even afford a conventional apartment because there are just so many people relative to the homes that are available. And Vermont also has to deal with the fact that it has an older housing stock, uh, which means that some of that housing is not really suitable to live in or suitable for the needs of modern Vermonters. Hmm. And at the same time, it's really pricey in Vermont to build new homes because we're in New England and it's cold and you have to do all these things to keep people from freezing in their houses. Sure. So I think a lot of the people that I talk to ask the question, well, can we can we not do the conventional single family, large standalone home and, you know, make something that's more affordable to live in? Let's talk about some of those more flexible solutions that you've been looking into. You mentioned home sharing and these sorts of accessory units. What does that look like exactly? Home share has been around for quite a while, actually. It's, it's not even necessarily a new idea, although I think that it may have new relevance is um, housing becomes more and more expensive in Vermont. But home share Vermont, the concept is that uh, people who might have some extra space in their home but need help around the house, whether that's because they're getting older or because they have a really busy schedule 
or they have some living situations that could use an extra helping hand. Uh, they partner those people up with people who are looking for housing and who are willing to do the, that extra share of chores or that extra share of companionship. I spoke to Kirby Dunn, the director of Home Share of Vermont, and she said that when she first started, she did it because she had an aging mom that she was taking care of and she needed an extra hand around the house. But now she's been doing it for a decade and she mostly just does it because it's great to have someone there to be a companion. Uh, she said she did know how she would have gotten through the pandemic without it. What does the actual physical arrangement look like when we're talking about home sharing? Well, with home share, it, it can really vary depending on the home. Sometimes it can just be an extra room or an extra little section of the house. But what Dunn said is that they encourage people, especially if they have the ability to have a separate apartment that is attached or semi-attached to their home. So people can live in there at that space share some of the facilities with you, but also still have their own private place where they can kind of control their own living situation. It's the sort of thing that used to be very common. Like it, it wasn't considered a low status thing to live in a boarding house for a while as a young professional. Joel Vanderweel is a architect for Union Studio, which designed the Side Hustle House. And he helped to design the side hustle house because he saw people in his friend circle who were struggling to afford their own home. So he and his coworkers conceived of this side hustle home that would be adaptable to people's needs and very, hopefully, affordable to start building. It's a difficult situation because home ownership is such a deeply rooted idea in American culture and economics. And it used to be sort of a foregone conclusion that you reach a certain age. In the past, it was, you know, between 25 and 35, probably, and you buy a, a little starter house. And now those starter houses that were built in the 40s and 50s for the boomers are 50% more expensive tracking with inflation and incomes have not gone up in the same way as housing costs. And so um, what used to be a rite of passage is now unattainable for many, many people. And so they're looking for other solutions to get their foot in the door of home ownership. So the architects of the side hustle house have taken that kind of concept of having these semi-connected spaces that you grow and change over the course of the home to create a modern dwelling that responds to people's affordable housing needs. So you start off occupying not that much space and as your family grows or as your income grows or whatever, you occupy a greater percentage of the home. And then as you're aging in place, you can go back to occupying a smaller percentage of the home and renting out the space. Or we've seen people who have a home health worker who helps them out for aging in place. And so if we can create a solution that can accommodate all those different stages of life, that creates more durability and long-term affordability. Do you think that the current housing stock, you know, especially like more modern housing is not very flexible? I would say so. And I would say that part of it is the housing that is being built is too big. And uh, that's not one person or one industry's fault, but 
housing size has gone up like 50% since the 60s, like in terms of square feet, but the household size in terms of number of members occupying the household has gone down by about 20%, I think. And so that, that creates a really difficult problem because a four bedroom house is not something that a huge percentage of people need, but it is a too large a share of the homes that are being built. So we have not enough homes for the number of people who need them, but arguably too many bedrooms and many unoccupied bedrooms in homes that are too large for the household. So the concept of having a separate space or connected or semi-connected spaces is really fundamental to Vermont. It was very common for Vermonters to have what they would call big house, little house, back house, barn. So they would build a small house when they first moved onto the property. And then as their family would grow out, they would build a bigger house where everyone could live and use those smaller original spaces as kind of side apartments for relatives or people in the community that might need it. And so if we can create forms that are comfortable and familiar to people now that support arrangements that had been used in the past but have sort of aren't talked about as much like home sharing or roommates or renting out a room or whatever that creates more options for people within a widely accepted architectural form. So it's sort of a a way to pretty efficiently implement one of these accessory dwelling units but designed in a way that sort of fits in with what New England houses are already all about. Yeah, he was partly inspired by the concept of the traditional New England home. And the design, the outward design, is kind of designed to fit into the local architecture, too, which um, might help with some of the reluctance in the community to build affordable houses. Got it. You mentioned tiny homes as one of these types of flexible solutions that have become more popular in recent years. How do tiny homes fit into this? Or Actually, I guess I should ask, what is a tiny home and how do tiny homes fit into this? I don't know if there's a precise definition. I guess you would just say that a tiny home is a home that is deliberately small, but still standalone. It's on its own yard space or property. So it's not an apartment where you are dividing up a space with a bunch of other people. It's one singular small space, often a trailer or uh, some sort of mobile unit that people then add the needs of their whole house into. And I spoke to one tiny house dweller, Aaron Mail O'Keefe, who has not only been living in a tiny home for a while now, but also helps to plan the tiny house fest that comes to Vermont every year. As someone who does not live in a tiny house, and I can't really say I know any other people who do, what is it like? Um, you got to keep it clean all the time. <laughs> if oh you make God. a mess, you're tripping over it. Yeah. So, she said that when she first had to make the move, she had to do it very deliberately and had to go through and think for herself, what do I really need? Really, the reality is I had to grow, I had to move to a smaller pot. Like I had to, I had to prune myself in order to fit into a smaller space. And she had to prune her lifestyle and her material possessions. But she believes that that pruning helped her to live a more fulfilled lifestyle in the tiny home. 
I mean, that sounds great on an individual level. How does it fit into this broader conversation about creating more affordable housing? Tiny homes aren't necessarily cheaper to build or design than apartments are because they they are designed to be standalone. I think that they end up costing a little bit more in terms of your heating and your plumbing and your other uh, infrastructure needs. But they are a very cheap way of getting the Vermont experience of having your own space or having, you know, a lot of outdoor space around you, which some people might want. The possibility of escaping a huge mortgage is, a, is, is massive in terms of young people being able to get into housing. So how do you build something that you can afford right now that's sized appropriately for your budget and then add as you go along? If you are living in an apartment and you want to make the move to a more natural living space, but you can't afford a full home, maybe you could afford a tiny home. So maybe not the be-all, end-all solution to Vermont's affordable housing. I do not think everyone in Vermont should move into tiny homes. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of fitting into this idea of let's have all these different options available to people so that they can choose what best fits their needs rather than forcing people to live in this modern concept of a single family, two parents, two kids kind of housing situation. All these things you've listed out, uh, all these flexible housing ideas. I know you've said that some elements of this have been around for a while, but it sounds like the idea that these could be applied to the housing crunch in Vermont is a relatively new idea. And I wonder how people who have been working on this problem for a long time think about these types of more creative solutions. Yeah, I spoke with Chris Donnelly, who's the Director of Community Relations at Champlain Housing Trust. Uh, I was going to say, we've been building tiny homes for years. We just stack them all together in one big building. Um, yeah, so, CHC yeah. is um, one of the largest housing trusts uh, in the country, and they help to build affordable housing in the community and help people to afford it through grants and other programs. And he said that when he hears about these kind of solutions, he has to be very skeptical because he is working with the reality of on the ground of seeing the struggle and the need that people have that is very, I guess you could say immediate and very simple. People just need a place to live. To put it in scale, you know, the regular, like a, just a, the median priced home in Chittenden County is $327,000. You have to earn $90,000 a year just to afford that. So even if you brought the price down to you know, 275 or 250, um, you'd still need to have an income of 70 or $75,000. And that's more than most people earn. Yeah, I think the median income in Vermont is around $60,000. Yeah. Median household income, not individual. Right. And then you have to save $20,000. You have to have savings. You know, people just say, well, why don't people, you know, I, I hear this a lot. Why don't people just, instead of renting, why don't they just buy something? They're going to be paying the same amount of money for mortgage as it would be for their rent, but there's no way to save money when you're paying all that money in rent. It's definitely a national problem. And it's actually kind of funny to me when I first moved to Vermont, I thought that housing was really cheap because I had been trying to afford an apartment in New Jersey for a couple of years and failing to. And suddenly I could actually afford to live in my own apartment, but the cost of housing relative to people's incomes in the area is very high. And that's true nationally. That's true whether you live in California or New York or Texas. 
for Florida is that housing costs have gone up relative to the cost of people's incomes. A large percentage of people in this country are spending more than 30% of their income on housing, which more than 30% is, is considered to be unaffordable because you need, you need your money for other stuff too. In this country, our housing policy is backwards. So we subsidize people like me that own a home. I get, a, I get guaranteed subsidy. Uh, because I can deduct my mortgage on my taxes. So anyone that owns a home that, has, that pays interest on their mortgage uh, can deduct that. Most people can. When you rent a home, only one in four people qualify for any assistance. And people that are renting are typically lower income. So we're giving public dollars through subsidies to people that own, all of us, all the owners. And then we're, we're only subsidizing one in four of the people that are renting. One in four of the people that qualify. Yeah. A little bit backwards. But anyhow, I got off my soapbox. So it's more like if we could really just subsidize the existing ownership and rental structure in a way that worked for people, that that could be a solution too. Yeah, yeah. He also said that he was very, when he hears the term like tradition or uh, community design, he feels very Wary, you know, it's because he hears those terms being used by people who are trying to exclude people from living in affordable housing solutions like apartments because they are afraid of change in their community or lower income people moving into their community. The use of character in terms of architecture has been used as a way to zone out people that are undesirable. And we see that in multifamily housing, certainly have seen it in suburban areas where worse than redlining is money was not available to black and brown people to buy homes. In Vermont, the word character has been used in zoning regulations as a way to say, well, that's just not what we're like here in terms of the architecture and then that, that segregates their communities. That's really interesting. So he's saying that the people who are trying to kind of engineer these solutions so that they fit with a certain aesthetic or design that's common to New England might actually kind of be trying too hard? Yeah. And I also, as I spoke to many of the people for the story, they pointed out that there is this false notion of traditional Vermont as a place of the single family standalone home, when the reality is that Vermonters have always used these kinds of flexible housing solutions and different ways of thinking about affordable housing to solve the affordable housing problem. It's not like, you know, these Vermonters trying to build their first homes living out in the cold 1700s winter were building these big, big houses with white picket fences. That's actually a relatively modern concept that's only about from the mid-century of the 1900s. So from what you've laid out, there are all these different types of these sort of flexible housing scenarios, these creative solutions that people are putting forward as possible ways to sort of ease the affordability issue. You've got people like Chris Donnelly who are saying, you know, we really need to just address the immediate need here and fund these subsidies better. Does it seem like there's one dominant way forward? Yeah, I think maybe my perspective is there's no one dominant way forward. We can definitely have increased subsidies for affordable housing via apartments and 
subsidized buildings and living units, while at the same time trying to adapt these other ideas and maybe adapt our own housing stock to fit more flexible needs. So, so there are different camps. Joe Vanderweel, the architect from the Side Hustle House. There are people who argue about affordable housing and only talk about subsidized affordable housing. There are some people who argue from a market-based side that it's all about supply and demand and deregulation is the way to go. I think they're all sort of right. I think all of those solutions can be brought to bear to this problem. Not any one of them is going to solve problem on its own. And so I, I think that from design to financing to zoning regulations to federal housing programs, I think all of it needs to be used at the same time. <laughs> Everyone needs to push forward in their own lane and not get in the way of the other lanes because what people think of as necessary for their own housing situation is different for so many different people. That can help to capture like a really broad swath of people from people who are on the verge of homelessness to people who are just millennials who are speaking of living with their in-laws to people who are living on a fixed income in retirement and need some help around the house to large families that need a certain amount of space for their, their children and make all of these different solutions work, hopefully with a combination of Vermonters getting together to work on all of this. And, you know, not only make the houses themselves flexible, but also make Vermont society and the way we think about the concept of a home a little bit more flexible. So remove ourselves from this defined notion of what a home has to be. Thanks, Erin, for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. You can find Erin's full story on creative solutions to the housing crunch at vtdigger.org. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We used music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger newsroom. See you then.